author Joe Wright shares, I'll never forget the day I hit rock bottom as a daddy. I first started to realize my failure when my oldest son's babysitter taught him how to ride his bike for the very first time. It's such a monumental achievement for a boy. In fact, five decades haven't erased reaching that milestone in my own life. But Brady experienced it without me. I asked him, Brady, can I come watch you ride your bike later this afternoon? The response from my sweet, gentle six-year-old son hit me like an avalanche. No, Dad, it's okay. You're busy in the summer. He opened my heart more skillfully than a surgeon, for I was busy not only in the summer, but also in the fall, winter, and spring, and I was losing my son. Ever felt like that? Maybe as a parent, you're there now. Allow me to ask you a question that my dad asked me all the way back in 1987. My kids, Bree and Brent, Brent and our kids, were about one and two, one and two years of age. Or maybe even younger than that. I guess they would have been younger than that, four or five years of age. And he sat me down in our tiny little kitchen and he said, Jeff, let me ask you, who are the most important people in your life? And I said, well, my family. Then he said, are you showing it? And I said, no. And then he asked, what are you going to do about it? And my priorities and my balance of ministry and family life were never the same from that point on. Could I ask you the same question? Who are the most important people in your life? Are you showing it? If not, what are you going to do about it? We continue in our series, Family Matters, and today we're going to look from the child's perspective at the top three requests I believe they have of their parents. And if you're not a parent, maybe you're a grandparent and all these things apply. Or if you're not a parent or a grandparent, maybe God will bless you someday with kids so you can write these down and use these in the future. First, children want you to listen. They need you as parents to have a sense of approachability where they can come to you and talk to you about their hurts, their frustrations, their failures, whatever it is. Remember God's our Heavenly Father, and how He responds to us. Read this with me, Psalms 34, verse 18. Let's read this out loud. The Lord... Your kids need to have the same feeling that you, like our Heavenly Father, will hold them, care for them, and love them no matter what. Yet a survey was conducted by a teen magazine, 17, and it revealed that only 4% of teenage girls in America feel like they can approach their dad and discuss serious problems. In other words, 96 out of 100 girls feel like their dads are unapproachable. USA Today did a poll that indicated when teens are in crisis or under stress, 
Here they indicated the top places they turn. Number one, what do you think it is? Good job. You read the notes. You read my notes. Music. Music is number one. Second is friends. Third is to the internet or to television. Wondering where mom and dad checked in? Mom checked in at number 32. Dad checked in at number 48. Wow. Kids are overwhelmingly saying these days, my parents are unapproachable. Got any NASCAR fans in here? Any NASCAR fans? Raise your hand higher. Two of you. Three of you. All right. I, I like it. I've grown to love it. My favorite part about NASCAR racing is the pit stops. While living in North Carolina, I had about four different opportunities to stand in the pits and watch it all unfold. Amazingly, five guys make up the main pit crew, and they are incredible. The driver pulls in, he, they, then all the guys jump over the retaining wall. They then shoot to the front side, jack it up. The tire crew comes over the wall, and when they're finished, they're already jacking up the other side of the car. Then they begin to fill the gas tank up, and they fill the gas tank up with 22 gallons of gas put on four tires in 15 seconds or less, synchronized. That is absolutely amazing. And when you watch it in person, it blows you away. And here's one of my theories as to why kids think their parents are unapproachable. They see them as NASCAR parents, as a pit crew who think they can do this parenting thing in 15 seconds or less. Monday morning, their engines rev up and the race begins. Many days, it's so intense and so competitive that they don't make it home for dinner, but they get home sometimes at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night. They come roaring into the pits. They hug their kids, gulp down dinner, give a quick look to their homework, schoolwork, pat their kids on the head as they say goodnight, then it's off to bed because they're already a lap behind and they know they got to try to get ahead the next day. So when a child really wants to talk to mom or dad about something, there's no way they're going to do that because they can't approach a NASCAR parent. They're too busy, they're too tired, they're too preoccupied. Let me let you in on a little secret, and it is not complicated. You know how you spell approachability as a parent? It's not tough. T-I-M-E, which spells time, time. It's tragic with our kids that they just don't get that, not as they need it. The more time you spend with your kids as they're growing up, the more the friendship grows, the more relationship, the relationship grows, the more the approachability comes. I spent a lot of time with my son Brent on the ball fields and things because of that father-son connection. But I knew early on, in order to establish a relationship with my daughter, I needed to do something different. So she's in here. She can testify to it. We would go on daddy-daughter breakfast dates. Even on vacation, 
we would leave everybody at the house and it would just be her and I that would go to breakfast. That was intentionality. It had to happen in order to, for her later in her teenage years to know, and even her adult years, to know that she can approach me. Parenting cannot be done in 15 seconds or less. It's not a pit stop. It's an entire race. Dr. Ross Campbell says one of the keys to communicating, especially with a teenager, is focused attention. It's saying for the, to them, for the next few minutes, you are the only thing that matters in my life. I'm locking eyes with you. I'm locking hearts with you. And nothing else in the world matters right now except for you. And then you just listen. You don't speak much. You ask questions. Question like, what's wrong? How do you feel about that? What are you going to do about that? You probe a little deeper, but then you speak. James gives great advice to this for we as parents. James 1.19 says, dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I love the way the message paraphrases this. Post this at all the intersections, dear friends. Lead with your ears. Man, how much better would we all be? Lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue, and let anger straggle along in the rear. Secondly, kids will say, I need more freedom. I need more freedom. I read that a mother bear drives her cubs up a tree and when they're about a year and a half old, when they first start to try to come down the tree, she nips at them and forces them back up in the tree, and then she disappears. So when the cubs finally are brave enough to pass mama again, she's not there, but when they're finally brave enough to pass her, they're able to come down the tree, and they're on their own from that point on. We as humans, in our relationships, it's just the opposite. From the time our kids are born, they seek their own independence, while we as parents try to hold on to them. Toddlers do just the opposite of what they're told to do. Expect it. Preschoolers say, Mommy, I'm going to do it myself. Grade school children start keeping secrets from their parents. Teenagers don't want their parents hanging around, hovering over them. Children instinctively crave independence. We as parents instinctively resist. No matter how old they are, we still try to hold on and cling to that. One young mother wrote, I took my month-old son to my parents' house for a visit. During the first night back in my childhood bedroom, I heard my father get up and start down the hall. Then I listened as my mother said to him, it's cold, make sure the baby's covered up. Pretending to be asleep so I could observe the new grandfather in action, I soon learned that I would always be daddy's little girl. When he came in the room, he didn't go near the baby's crib, but he made sure I was tucked in before he shuffled back down the hall. Parents instinctively want to protect their kids no matter how old 
they get. There's a natural tug of war going on between giving freedom or holding back. Wise parents give their children freedom progressively. Let me go into that a little bit. Ephesians 6, 4, Paul says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. That word exasperate means do not evoke, invoke anger or a rebellious spirit in them. Colossians 3, 21 uses similar language. Fathers, don't embitter your children. There are two extremes here when it comes to embittering your children. Being overly strict or being overly lenient. You have to strike the middle. And sometimes that's tough to do. Wise, godly parents give progressive freedom with added responsibility. What's that mean? Well, the government tries to do it. The government, you know, you have driving privileges when you're how old? You can drive. 16. You can vote when you're 18. You, have a, you can purchase alcohol when you're 21. Progressively, it gives more freedom. Parents need to give reasonable progressive freedoms as their children grow. You say, okay, Sally, when you're eight, you can go to day camp. Around 10, maybe you can go stay overnight at a friend's house by yourself. When you're 14, we'll consider letting you have a cell phone. Now there are six-year-olds with cell phones. When you're 26, we'll think about letting you date. <laughs> no, no. But they go on to say when you're a senior, you may have a later curfew. When you go off to college, if we're paying the bills, we expect to see your grades. We're not going to finance the party life. That's not a choice. Then when your kids get married, you release them completely. You remain friends and you're friends as close as they want to be. But you release all rights to tell them what to do. You encourage, you support, but you don't tell them what to do. And that is a tough one. Irma Bombeck wrote about parenting, about as good as I'd ever heard it. She writes this. I see children as kites. You spend a lifetime trying to get them off the ground. You run with them until you're both breathless. You crash. You add a longer tail. You hit a rooftop. You plug up, pluck them out of the gutter. You patch and you comfort, adjust and teach. You watch them lifted by the wind and assure them that someday they'll fly. Well, finally, they're airborne but they need a little more string and you keep letting it out. And with each twist of the ball of twine, there is sadness that goes with the joy because the kite becomes more and more distant and somehow you know that it won't be long before that beautiful creature will snap the lifeline that bounds you together and soar as it was meant to soar, free and alone. Only then will you know that you did your job. Third, kids want affirmation. One of the crying needs of children is approval from their parents. Little children say, look at me, mom. Look at me, dad. 
teenagers want their parents in the stands or in the audience applauding them. Is dad coming to my recital? What did mom say? I remember as a teenager when I wrestled in high school, believe it or not, yes, I wrestled. 98 pounds as a freshman. Yeah, you can laugh later. But I can remember hearing my dad's whistle when I was about to get pinned and a whole place, the whole auditorium was echoing. I could pick my dad's whistle and my dad's cheer out of every voice, out of hundreds of people. They want you there. Brenna and I made it a priority to be at all of our kids' activities, all their sporting events. The only thing that took priority of that was worship. Worship. Desire approval doesn't stop when you're 25 or even 50, though. Many of us in here who are older still appreciate the affirmation of our parents. And wise parents give it frequently. Add a boy, add a girl. I'm so proud of your report card. You looked them right in the eye when you were talking to them. Way to go. You're doing awesome. Also, affirmation comes with physical touch. And I think we feared away from this a little bit. The Bible talks about the patriarchs laying their hands on their children and blessing them in Genesis 48. Studies have been done that show little babies need to be touched. They need to be held. And that doesn't stop as your children grow older. They need affirmation and physical touch from you. Hug them. Wrestle with them. Pat them on the arm. Kiss them. Give them affirmation as much as you can. Catch them doing something good. We don't just heap verbal praise and constant hugs, though, smother them with attention and expect them to turn out to be saints. That doesn't happen. Encouragement needs to be balanced by two qualifiers. Here they are. First, affirmation needs to be balanced by appropriate correction. Appropriate correction. The Bible speaks of encouragement, but it's almost always coupled with rebuking and correction. It says, preach the word, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction in 2 Timothy 4. Titus 2.15 says, encourage and rebuke with all authority. If your child is never corrected, never disciplined for inappropriate behavior, then your praise becomes meaningless flattery. It carries no weight. They'll say, oh, you always say that. You always say that. If corrected when wrong, encouraged when right, then affirmation means so much more. But rebuking and correcting need to be done calmly and confidently. Kids will say, well, you always yell at me. Why don't you ever stop screaming at me? You can teach your child respect without losing your control and raising your voice. How many have ever been pulled over by a state trooper? Right? When the lights are flashing behind you, what is your heart doing? Right? I get shaken. I tell them, Brenda, find the papers, find the papers. I sweat, I sweat, you know. Why? 
Why? They'll walk up to the window. They'll say, may I see your driver's license? And we're just trembling. And most of us still respect the police officer. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't threaten. He's calm. He's reserved or she. Why are we so respectful? Why are we so scared? Because of the authority and the leverage that they have. They can write a ticket that can cost us a lot of money. And if they really want to, they can handcuff us and take us away. Authority and leverage. Listen, parents, never forget you have been given God-given authority and leverage over your kids. You are the one that's in control. You can give them time out. You can ground them. We don't have time to go in all these, withhold their allowance. Yes, I believe you can spank them uh, with, you know, control. You spank them. I can't tell you how many times I ran and got in the shower so my dad wouldn't get me, right? We miss that. We miss that. You can withhold college tuition, allowance, You don't have to shout or plead as long as they know where the action line is. I knew where the action line was when I grew up. It was when my mom would use my full name. She's Jeffrey Edward. Uh Uh-oh. I had to respond. Lead them to first-time obedience so they know where the action line is, and you won't have to raise your voice. It will come from your authority and they will be encouraged. Second qualifier, affirmation has to be balanced with teaching children that the ultimate approval comes from where? God. The ultimate approval for their life comes from God. Bible says that Hezekiah feared the Lord and sought his favor. Parents, it is your responsibility, and grandparents, it's your responsibility to teach your children to fear the Lord and seek his favor first and foremost. If they primarily seek the favor of their friends and even family, they're going to be disillusioned and let down as their friends leave them, disappoint them, or as family members die and pass away. But if they seek God's favor, it's a permanent foundation on which they can build their lives. Jesus said we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Children aren't going to be taught that in school. And we're lucky here at the church these days to have them two hours a week. And that's stretching it. It has to come from within the home. One of the greatest verses ever written on this and directed towards it is Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. Let's read this out loud together. Let's read this. These commandments that I give you today Next slide, next slide. Keep going. 
tie them. I love that last phrase. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Parents, your kids ought to be able to walk around the house, see scripture, see encouragement on the wall of their bedroom that comes straight from the heart of God. Keep it in front of them. Make sure Bible stories are read to your kids when they're young. We've shown you resources that we have here at Northside to help you with that. Talk to God. Talk about God in teachable moments when you see a rainbow, when you see a baby kitten. Talk about God. Teach your kids to memorize scripture. Embed it on their hearts. Heard about a three-year-old little girl went to see the pediatrician. And this doctor was kind of a funny, crazy kind of guy. He would take his light, his tiny light, and he'd shine it in her, in her right ear. And when he shined it in there, he said, let me see if I can see Big Bird in there. And she'd giggle and laugh. Then he went to the other side and took his light and shined it in her left ear and said, let's see if Cookie Monster's in there. She'd giggle, laugh some more. Then he said, okay, open your mouth. I want to see if Bert and Ernie are down in there. She'd open her mouth and giggle some more. Then he took his stethoscope. And he said, let me see if Mickey Mouse is in your heart. And she giggled, and she said, no, silly. Jesus is in my heart. Mickey's on my underwear. I love that old story. As parents and as grandparents, we ought to knock ourselves out day and night making sure our kids understand the most important thing in life is that they have Jesus in their heart. Above everything else is Jesus in your heart. Proverbs 22, 6 reads, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Well, they may wander a little bit, but they'll come back. They'll come back to it if they've been trained up that the most important thing in life is to have Jesus in their hearts. When I was young, my parents didn't really care much about worship. It wasn't a priority to them. My dad really went, it rarely went at all until I got into upper, upper elementary but I can remember in my early, early years, four years to six years of age, I can remember my dad being flat out drunk all the time. So bad, I remember, vividly remember, about five or six years old, that he was so drunk, he took his motorcycle and drove it right into the house, into the living room. I can remember fights that my mom and dad would have bad fights. I remember her taking all her luggage and, and he stood and blocked the front door so she couldn't leave. It was horrible. Most of my life, up to age nine, I was raised by my mom and dad's parents. That's where I spent most of my time. 
if you were to ask my dad, he would stand here and he would tell you point blank, this is what happened, this is what changed it all. He was faithful enough to take me fishing a lot. We would go fishing in a creek called Cross Creek down in Jefferson County, Ohio. And we'd walk the creek. When I was about eight years old, we were walking a creek, and he'd always go first, so I wouldn't scare the fish. He'd go first. And we'd be fishing along, walking the creek, and he turned around one day as we were fishing, and it's muddy there. He turned around, and he saw me I was walking in his footprints. I would step in each of his footprints to make it through the mud. And he said it was this, as if God slapped him upside the head and said, what are you doing? What kind of example are you setting? Your son is following in your footsteps. And if you don't get your life together, his life isn't going to be worth anything. And at age nine then, I gave my life to the Lord because my parents got their act together. I was able to get my act together. And the story went on from there. What footprints are you leaving? As a parent, as a grandparent, what footprints are you leaving? Leaving behind for your children to follow. Father, we thank you so much for being here and present this day. God, I thank you for every parent here, every grandparent here, every person here, maybe God, that one day you're gonna bless with children. And God, those who have influence over kids that may not be parents or grandparents, God, use us, we pray, to speak into the younger generation to leave footprints that they can follow that lead straight to the heart of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, if there's someone here today that needs to straighten out their relationship with him, allow God to come to any one of us here on the stage and say, hey, tell me more. Tell me more about Jesus. Tell me more about how I can make him real in my heart. God, allow him to do so as this service closes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, please.